Okay, folks, so we are, we are picking up with this uh, little mini-series on the perspicuity uh, of Scripture, uh, which just simply means the clarity of Scripture. Uh, speaks about uh, the, the, the quality of the Bible as, as being a, a book that is, that is clear and understandable as opposed to being something that is clou- cloudy or dim or, uh, or confusing. We're just simply saying the Word of God is, is understandable, uh, and that it can be properly interpreted uh, in, in a normal, literal sense. Charles Hodge just simply said that the Bible is a plain book. So the Old Testament is clear, we've said. The New Testament is, 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 is equally clear. The Old Testament is not subordinate to the New Testament, so the New Testament doesn't reinterpret uh, the Old Testament. But as God revealed, gave us his revelation through, through history, as God gave us those Old Testament books, and as we got our New Testament books together, it's, it's not as if the, the, the information we have in the New Testament somehow vetoes uh, the interpretation that we have of, of the Old or the, the interpretive work that we've done in Old Testament passages. Uh, so the Bible is clear. That's the thing we've been sort of pounding away at. And we just made the point <clears throat> the last uh, couple of, of weeks that not everybody uh, agrees with that. Uh, a lot of pushback against this this particular doctrine, sometimes even from uh, within evangelicalism. Uh, so we looked at sort of a, a, a objections to this particular doctrine, not just within the church, but also coming from, from outside um, uh, evangelicalism. So we looked at some, some of those objections, and we talked about the, sort of the, the, the Catholic uh, objection, covered some of that in, in detail. We talked about the objection uh, of pluralism, uh, that, that simply questions the idea that, that anybody, that any of us has sufficient grounds to know whether an interpretation is right or wrong. Uh, and, and, and they simply say, listen, if you, if, you, if you believe that, if you claim to know with certainty what Scripture teaches on a particular subject, then you're proud, you're arrogant. Uh, we, we looked at uh, the attack of, of mysticism. Um, uh, the, the mystic has this idea that God is so transcendent that he cannot be talked about meaningfully with words. Uh, and we use this, or we, we threw out this phrase, you may have heard it, I, I mentioned it to my wife this morning, she's like, I just, I mean, she goes, I just heard that recently. <laughs> you, you can't put God in a box. You know, the, you hear those types of, of phrases. And what people mean by that is that they're saying that they, they do not believe that truth can be captured in, in words. They're saying, you know, the, the Bible can, cannot contain God, and so it's, they're, they're, they're casting uh, suspicion and doubt on, on the clarity of, of Scripture in saying that. Uh, the last time we were, we were together, we went on to, to uh, look, finish up a section that just the Bible's own claim about its own clarity. Uh, we, we had started back all the way in the Old Testament just to show you that throughout Old Testament history, the writers of the Old Testament and then even in the New Testament, their understanding of the Old that this uh, idea of clarity is throughout the scriptures. We went to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, where Moses told the people that the word of God was not beyond them. Uh, and Moses reassured the people that they could understand the word of God, that they could, uh, they could understand it and were expected to obey it. So Moses says, basically, God's word is not inaccessible and it is not some, some mysterious thing. It's not, it's not cryptic. Uh, we went on to, from Deuteronomy, just, we're just sort of picking up uh, just a sprinkling of examples. We went to the book of Psalms, looked at Psalm 119, Psalm 19, 
looked at Israel's history during the divided kingdom during Josiah's day, uh, went on to the prophets, even the time after the, uh, the exile during, during the days of, of Nehemiah and Ezra, and uh, some passages there that supported this as, as well. Then we jumped over to the New Testament. We looked at the, the life of Christ and, and, and looked at how Jesus would appeal to a text from the Old Testament, thinking that his appeal to that Old Testament text settled the issue. So he, he, would, he, would, he not only believed that the Old Testament was authoritative, but he, but he believed that the Old Testament had a fixed meaning that people should have been able to recognize. And so he, he reprimanded the Jewish establishment uh, of his day f- in many different ways for, for not conforming to the word of God. He, he addressed their, uh, uh, their infatuation with their rabbinical traditions and then exalting t- the traditions of men over, uh, over the word of God. And then by doing that, he says, you have invalidated the word of God. You've, you've made it invalid because you have you have. Clung to your traditions, which which have been handed down. Uh, six different times, Jesus made this statement: "Have you not read?" Suggesting that if his opponents had known the scriptures better, they would not be making the mistakes that they were making. So clearly, Jesus approached God's written revelation again at that time, just the Old Testament, as if it could be known and as if it could be. Understood, and the apostles simply followed in line. They followed in Jesus' steps here. They were, they were regularly quoting from the Old Testament. They were alluding to the Old Testament, finding fulfillment uh, of, of Old Testament scriptures, all with, the, all with the assumption that those Old Testament texts had a correct meaning and that they were in possession of that meaning. So the scriptures are clear. We gave examples of, of, uh, uh, from the book of Acts, from uh, Paul's writings to, to Timothy and in Second Peter, a passage we'll look at in just a moment. So the scriptures are clear. We can interpret them. We, uh, they, they can be understood. We can have certainty about, about what we believe. So then what we did is we started into a list. Of, we, it's sort of a list of affirmations, if you will, affirmations and denials, just to sort of give some further detail because when you just say scriptures are clear, people are thinking, yeah, but they're not so, some things are not so clear to me. You know, I'm confused about certain passages. Some passages seem to be easier to understand than others. And so when we say the Bible is clear, are we saying that that every single verse is equally clear or that, that we should not have a problem? We should just be opening up the Bible and the meaning should just be sort of popping off the page. So just to sort of fine tune what we're, what we mean by perspicuity, we, we, kind of gave a list of things, things that we're not saying about perspicuity and things that we are, are saying. And we kind of stopped in the, in the middle of this uh, list, and we'll pick back up with this. But let me just run through these, uh, kind of catch us up where, where we left off. So what we're not saying about perspicuity, we're not saying the scriptures are so clear that they do not need any interpretation. Uh, clearly, we, we, we definitely need to interpret the scriptures uh, we're not saying that a clear understanding of Scripture comes via the Spirit of God apart from diligent study on our part. So it's not as if we just sort of open up the Bible and expect the Spirit of God to just sort of download the meaning, you know, just sort of drop the meaning on us. Uh, that's, that's not what we're, you know, that's not what happens. And we, we are encouraged throughout the Word of God to study the Word of God. Uh, to set our heart as Ezra did, to, to study God's word, to practice it, and to be able to, to teach 
the word of God to others. Uh, we're not saying that ev- everything in the Bible is, is equally clear. There is a difference between uh, simplicity and, and clarity. A scripture is clear. We're just saying it's not, it's not mystical. Uh, it's not hidden. But in certain passages, it does often take greater work to understand what the biblical authors meant. Uh, and this is why Peter, in 2 Peter 3, he c- commenting on Paul's writings, we said where Peter makes this comment in, when he says in verse 16, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Uh, we're, not, we're also not saying that the meaning of every verse in the Bible will be patently obvious uh, to everyone. We, we certainly acknowledge that uh, the fact that people are not equally able to understand all the things in the Bible. I mean, what I understand in the Bible and what my 10-year-old understands, there's, you know, there is a difference, varying degrees of mental capacity, varying degrees of, of education and ways of thinking that will, will impact that. So we, we, we acknowledge that. We're, we're not also not saying that we cannot gain biblical insight from others or that we should not seek that kind of help. Uh, we looked at Acts chapter 8 where uh, Philip, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the, out of the book of Isaiah. He's, he's, he's not understanding it. And Philip comes along and he, he explains. Uh, this, the text says he, he's, he gives guidance to the eunuch and, and opens his mouth. And then Philip begins from that scripture in Isaiah, he begins to preach Christ to him. So we're not saying that interpretation or, or exposition or explanation by a Bible teacher are never necessary because the New Testament speaks about gifts of teaching. And, and then we have the, the, the gift to the church of, of teaching pastors, elders that are, are by, by definition are, are to be qualified or, or able, apt to teach the, teach the scriptures. We're also not saying that we would never change our minds about one of our beliefs or convictions because we all have at one point or another. Um, but that's not because the scriptures are unclear. Uh, that's because uh, that's because of us. <laughs> that's because because in many cases, just our failure to be diligent. It's just sometimes sloppy interpretation. It's just a sloppiness in the way that we approach the Word of God. It's our it can sometimes be our pride. We don't want to see what the scripture is saying, you know, and we say we want to know what it says, but in our hearts, who knows what's going on in our hearts. Maybe we don't want to be confronted in our hearts by the, by the, the truth of scripture and the implications of that text for our lives. It may be confronting our idols. We don't like that. And so this, this is not because the scriptures are, are, are cloudy or some sort of mystery. It's, it's, it's the problems are on, on our ends. And for that very same reason, we're, we're not saying that the doctrine of perspicuity will inevitably lead all believers to the same conclusions uh, about the meaning of Scripture. So on the, on the affirmation side, what are we saying about perspicuity? Well, we are saying that Scripture is clear enough for the simplest person to live by, right? We, we looked at this, Psalm 119, verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. It gives it gives understanding to those who are easily led astray, to those who are prone to making mistakes, to those who lack sound judgment. That's what the Word of God does. It gives understanding. We're saying that Scripture is deep enough for readers of the highest intellectual ability, right? I love this quote we, by Philip Spiner. He says, 
Scripture is water in which a lamb can touch bottom and walk on it, but an elephant must swim. Uh, so it's, it's clear enough for the simplest person to live by, but it is deep enough for those of the greatest intellectual ability to spend their entire lives trying to, to uh, plumb the depths of the Word of God. We're also saying that the Bible is clear in, in its essential uh, matters, uh, that the main things that we need to know and the main things that we need to believe and to do to be faithful Christians can be clearly seen in, in the Bible. We're also saying that, that though there are things in Scripture that are difficult to understand, that they are not impossible to understand, provided that a person make use of the ordinary means of study and learning. And so we, this, this is what in Bible interpretation, hermeneutics, uh, that this is what that's that's about. It's about it's about coming to Scripture uh, with a submissive heart. It's about coming coming to Scripture, uh, believing in the self witness of Scripture about its own authority and its own power, and looking at the the, the principles and the of language, the rights of language, understanding the historical occasion, the context of the passage that we're studying looking at the, the grammar and the arrangement of phrases and how these things are connected, these ideas are, are connected, that by doing these things we can know what the Scriptures mean. Uh, we're also saying that the obscurity that a reader of the Bible may encounter in some portions of Scripture is the result of the finiteness, the weakness, the limitations, or the sinfulness of man. We just uh, made reference to that. Uh, we're also saying that there is a standard of Christian orthodoxy by which the church judges those who uh, judges those who who to be in, who are to be included in or removed from the fellowship of the church. In other words, the the, the church has an objective, uh, authoritative body of teaching, uh, it, because the the New Testament writers are are constantly referencing this that that judgments that need to be made in the church regarding who's who's to be considered in fellowship with the church and who's to be put out of fellowship with the church, it's got to be based on some objective criteria. This is not just a subjective thing. This is based on a standard. It's based on a body of teaching, and the writers of the New Testament appeal to that body of teaching, and they call it various things. I mean, all the way in as early as the book of Acts chapter 2, uh, Luke uses the phrase, the apostles' teaching. So there was this body of teaching, this body of doctrine, uh, it's 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 in almost every, I would say probably every New Testament letter, you find some reference to this to this form of teaching that was committed to the early church, the teaching of Christ. Uh, Jude in Jude it's called the faith, right? Jude in Jude verse three it's it's referred to as the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. In the pastoral epistles it's referred to as the teaching, the testimony, the gospel the standard, the treasure, the deposit, the word of truth, uh, the sacred writings. And this is sort of where we left off. So to add to these things, these sort of affirmations, we'll, uh, we'll pick, up, pick up here with, uh, we, we, are, we are saying by this, by perspicuity, and what we, what we mean by that, we're saying that even a non-Christian can understand the plain teachings of Scripture on an external level. Now, now you may... Th- what comes to mind here for me is a passage in, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Shane had preached, preached through 1 Corinthians of the last, last uh, couple of years. Uh, but in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul makes this statement. He says, but a natural man 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But, but the, po- the point of that passage, what Paul's saying there, is, is not that an unsaved person cannot understand what Scripture is saying or teaching. The point that Paul's making is that an unbeliever cannot have spiritual understanding. They cannot have spiritual understanding. What does that mean? It means that, that a, an unbeliever can study the grammar, right? I mean, the unbeliever can look at the Word of God. They can study the history. They can study the geography. They can take those phrases and those paragraphs and those different sections of Scripture apart. But what are they not able to do? Well, they're not able to see the eternal significance of those things. Uh, they're not able to accept the implications of those things. Uh, or we might say they're, they're, not, they're not able to embrace what it says by faith. They're not able to do that. And they cannot submit to its message and to its demands. And in some way, an unbeliever, having looked and examined the, the, the Word of God, will suppress what they gain from that study in the same way they would suppress what Shane referred to in Romans 1 a couple weeks ago, general revelation. They will drown out and, and suffocate what is being, what they're, what they're seeing. In other words, we might even say that they can see the meaning uh, on, on a surface level, um, but they'll always conclude that it's foolishness. So they can only go so far because at some point, as the meaning is coming together for them, they fail to see the, the, the significance of what they're reading. They fail to put together the sort of the theological dots in their minds. And is, if they even get close to doing that, their wicked heart says, <laughs> suppress, right? They, 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 will, they will not accept it. In fact, they will openly reject the self-witness of Scripture. They will not approach the Scripture based upon what the Scripture says about its own authority and its own clarity and its own converting power. So they will push that down. So the Holy Spirit has to illuminate the heart and the mind of the reader or the, or the person that's, that's either reading Scripture or studying it or hearing it. The Holy Spirit has to illuminate the heart and mind of that person if he is to understand the theological significance of the Bible, and only the Spirit can remove a person's, their, their biases towards Scripture. Only the Holy Spirit can remove the prejudices in a person's heart and life. Uh, only the Holy Spirit can convince a person of the supernatural nature of the Bible, its veracity, its, its credibility, its, its power. And only the Spirit can enable us to appreciate the meaning of Scripture and to embrace it by faith and to apply it to our lives. Now, we're also saying that every Christian has the right and the responsibility to hear or read and interpret the Scriptures for himself so that his faith rests on the authority of the Bible rather than the church or any other, other institution. So it's no church, no church officer, no, cler- no class of clergy members, no group of scholars, no particular Bible expositor, no matter how good they are, is the final authority. 
The text of Scripture is the final authority. And then lastly, we're, we're saying by perspicuity that, that God did not fail to communicate clearly. God did not fail to communicate clearly. Uh, to deny the clarity of Scripture is to call into question God's ability to communicate in a clear way. Whereas to affirm that the Bible's message is inherently understandable is to rightly acknowledge that the Spirit of God has revealed divine truth in a comprehensible form. And that's where I want to just sort of pick up and just let me just read for you. We're going to kind of hone in uh, to the final verses of chapter 1, but just to start back here in verse 16, 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1.16, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this is a reference. These uh, next couple of verses are a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration uh, and Peter's experience there. Verse 14, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an, an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we made ourselves, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And and notice what he says here, verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, you cannot have a God who reveals himself and who creates the means through which he reveals himself. Uh, on one hand, human language. And on the other hand, the, the actual the human instrument that he chooses. You cannot have a God who reveals himself and who creates the very means through which he's going to reveal himself and end up with an errant revelation with a revelation that has errors. So he says here, no prophecy of Scripture is of one's own interpretation. Now, now, what does Peter mean by that? What does Peter mean by that? Because when, when we, I think when we see the word interpretation, we think about, in our minds, we go to understanding like how we, how we interpret the Bible, our understanding of the Bible. Uh, but that's not that's not what Peter's referring to here. So, uh, and there's there's some different, you know, there's some confusion on this. And, I mean, this is a it's interesting because the Roman Catholic Church goes, aha, <laughs> this this is it. I mean, we told you, this is what they say. We we told you so. Uh, that the, the Roman Catholic Church would say that what Peter is doing here is prohibiting private judgment. So, so they would say it's, it's not safe, based on this passage, the Catholic Church would say it's not safe for an individual to interpret the Scriptures for himself because no prophecy of Scripture is of one's own interpretation. 
So that they would say that's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to lean on your own private interpretation. Only the church should be interpreting the Bible. Okay, so that's, that's sort of their, their slant on this. That's the way they approach this. And, and, and then plus it's Peter, right, saying it. So for them, that's all the more. So here it is. Peter just said it. We do not need to have people in the church with a Bible in their hands making their own private interpretations. Bad, bad stuff. You just need to put your Bibles away and let us figure this out. And we'll tell you what it means. But none of this private judgment or private interpreting of Scripture. Uh, others claim that what Peter's doing here is simply cautioning us against the interpretation of any particular prophecy on its own. So they're, they're saying that, that no prophecy is itself of any private interpretation. Or simply put, we need to be careful about taking hold of just one prophecy and on one prophecy elaborating some, some great doctrine or some body of doctrines. So they're saying that what Peter's saying here is that we is that we need to just we need to take an individual prophecy and put it in light of the whole body of prophecy. So just don't take one prophecy and zero in on that and not take into consideration all the other prophecies that have been given. Now again, we would say that there's some right, there's some truth in that, right? And we'd say this we would use this phrase comparing scripture with scripture, right? And 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 seeing a particular passage in in a, in a much larger a context and a much larger picture. So it's not, not necessarily uh, wrong, but the question is, is that what Peter means? I mean, the, the principle's not bad, but that's not, I don't think that's exactly what Peter's getting at. Then, there's, then, then, then there are some who say that what, what this verse means is that prophecy is not its own interpretation. So prophecy, they're, they're saying, doesn't carry its own interpretation in itself, but that it can only be understood when the events come to pass which it has prophesied and predicted. So it's just saying as you're interpreting prophecy, you won't know what the prophecy is about until the prophecy comes to fulfillment. That it's just a guard against, you know, I guess, uh, uh, trying to prematurely interpret or understand prophecy. But all these explanations seem to fail in this one, one way. To me, this is, the, this is the problem with all these interpretations. The problem with these interpretations is every one of them takes verse 20 by itself. And they don't really connect verse 20 to verse 21. So, so we'll have to keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. But first, a couple of other things, a couple of other items about verse, verse 20. Uh, I, whatever, I don't know what translation I'm, I'm, I'm reading out of, out of the New American Standard. But in the New American Standard, it says this, that no, no prophecy of Scripture Scripture is of one's own interpretation. That phrase, is of, may be better translated as, as originates or arises. It's, it's, it's genomai in the Greek. Uh, and you, so you sort of lose that, that meaning in, 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 in most of the translations. Then, then you have this word in, in interpretation in, in verse 20, which isn't probably the greatest translation choice either because again we go when we hear interpretation we think about us in in our day interpreting scripture uh, so that's probably not not the best choice here uh, because Peter's not talking about a person's understanding of scripture he's talking about the origin or the source of scripture so that this word interpretation could be rendered as expounding or even uh, a determination. 
So, so, so the idea that we have is something like this. In other words, this is, this is just a, 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 a new way of, I guess, to say, considering, tra- translating. This might be a better translation of verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of, script, of the Scripture originates or arises as the result of any private determination. Or you, you could even translate that even a little more freely. Uh, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture originates in the prophet's own understanding of things. In other words, what, what Peter states is that the, the biblical authors were not controlled by and were not ruled by the, the, the musings of their own intellect. I mean, we know that God used the, their intellect. God, God used the reasoning and the intellect of the human authors in that process of inspiration but what Peter's saying here is that the writers, the writers of Scripture were not ruled by those things. They were not ruled by their own musings. In that what came out was not the result of their own thoughts and their own reflections or their own interpretation. So Peter says that the biblical authors were not controlled by or ruled by the musings of their own intellect, nor, Peter says, was this process, in verse 21, an act of the human will? In other words, the, the, the biblical authors were moved by the Lord and not the autonomy of the human will. They were not autonomous from the sovereign plan of God to reveal himself accurately and clearly. So, so when, you put these, when you put verse 20 and, and 21 together, what you basically have here is a guarantee that you cannot have a document that contains errors. You cannot have it. Because human musings, human thoughts, human determinations cannot infect or corrupt the revelation that God has given, and human will could not override God's divine purposes. So, so the question is, why, 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 should we in, why should we pay attention to Scripture? I mean, why, why come out on, on a rainy Sunday morning, right? I mean, why, why are we here? Why even spend the time to come and to spend uh, 45 minutes to an hour in here studying this book? And then, to, and then if that's not enough, then we're going to go in here and we're going we're gonna to sing and, and worship. But then Shane's going to, he's not coming out of the Reader's Digest this morning, just in case you're worried, Okay. <laughs> This is not doing laughter, you know, laughter in uniform or any of those things from Reader's, Reader's Digest. He's coming out of this book, and he's convinced that this book is without error and that it's authoritative and that it's clear. So, so why, why do we pay attention to the Bible? Why should we meditate on the Bible? I mean, why should we be like a Psalm 1 kind of person that is meditating on the Word of God day and night, day and night, day and night? Why should we do that? Why should we base our lives on it? I mean, you think about it. I mean, if you're a true believer, you go throughout your week and you think about how many dozens, maybe hundreds, who knows, maybe thousands of decisions you make every week. And, and what is the basis for your decision? The Word of God. Why do you do that? Why do you base your life on this? You do that because Scripture isn't some recordings 
of the musings and the cognition and the thought and the understanding and the insight of just men. And it didn't originate in any, any, any determination on man's part. It isn't the expounding of man's views. Because what does he say next? But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Spirit of God moved men along, not in a trance, uh, not as a robot, but using the intellect and using human culture and using human language as, as a vehicle. The Spirit of God moved men along, literally drove these men along like a, a, the term is used in Acts of a strong wind blowing a ship, driving a ship to the point where the men on the ship just say, sort of, I, like, I give up. There's no, no need to try to fight the wind. We just need to, the wind is going to drive us this direction. Let's just go with it. That's the terminology that Peter picks up on. That the Holy Spirit drove these men along like a strong wind driving a ship in order to pen exactly what God wanted to speak. I mean, think about that phrase. They spoke from God. They spoke out from God. And the actual words that they penned are inspired. They are God-breathed. This is what God has done. God has embedded revelation, His revealing of Himself, in the words of human language and used the human authors to write exactly what He wanted them to write. And that is Peter's point. Uh, This is not about men deciding to write about their own ideas or what they thought. This is not about men going, you know, I'm just thinking about God and how awesome he is and vast and wonderful. I'm just going to write some things about the Lord. This isn't like we use the term inspired. It's not like these men were sitting around and they, I I got inspired the other day. I mean, I I got inspired to clean the garage. Right. I mean, in other words, we use this language sometimes. I got inspired to just to go do this for someone. That's not what we're saying. I mean, these men were not sitting around and going, you know what, I, we need, we, somebody needs to write this down. You know, I just had this great thought about God. If that's the case, then it makes total sense why people in the church today are saying that, our word, that the word of God fails to contain God. It fails to describe God. Why? Because they're viewing the word of God as just the musings of men. It's just the man struggling to define who God is. Man struggling in his own thoughts and his own musings to, to, to articulate this, the God who created all things. But that, that's not what this is about. It's not about men and their own ideas and their own thoughts. This is about the Holy Spirit taking hold of, of, the, of these men, these writers, giving them a message and carrying them or driving them along as they wrote and put it down on record so that the end product would be pure and clear and would convey exactly and perfectly what God intended for it to convey. That's what we mean. Clarity, inspiration, inerrancy. It, it's all, to me, it all goes together. It all goes together. And this passage to me just sort of brings that. This is, this is not men struggling 
to describe God. This is God revealing himself using men and human language. But God did not fail to communicate clearly. You remember back in Psalm 19, we, we looked at this passage. The law, beginning in verse, talks about general revelation, those first six verses. But then in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Think about that. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting or restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than than honey and and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover... By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. I mean, mean, how much more more comprehensive can you get? The the word of God restores, it it converts, it sanctifies, it it cleanses the conscience, it it builds the life of the believer, It, 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 it comprehensively trains us in righteousness. This is God's revelation. And this is the kind of effect that, that the writer says here, this is the kind of effect that it can have in your life. I mean, I thought, how sad would it be if God made it obscure? I mean, to say, this is what the word of God is going to do. It's going to convert, restore, build you up, lead you to righteousness. It's just not clear. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, to hold all those promises out and then to say, but the word of God is obscure. We can't understand it. It wouldn't even make sense. It wouldn't make sense for God to hold out these promises and then to make his word inaccessible. So perspicuity is a big deal. It's a big deal. Stakes, stakes are high. Stakes are high because accessibility to the truth is at stake. Accessibility to truth is at stake. The, the doctrine of perspicuity insists that even the simplest disciple... The simplest learner can understand God's word and be saved. Without the doctrine of perspicuity, one would have to speculate, who is the Bible for? Who's it for? Is, it, is the Bible only for pastors? Is, is the Bible only for, for professors? Is it only for those who are educated, those, those in the, of the clergy? I mean, can lay people be trusted with the scriptures? And do you really need to be a Hebrew scholar to understand God's word? I mean, do you need to be a Hebrew scholar to understand that men, how men came into existence, how man came into existence, or how God is the creator and the controller of all things? Or the fact that, that man's troubles are, are a result of, of sin, or that man is sinful and under the wrath of God? Do, do you need a working knowledge of Second Temple Judaism <laughs> or, or some sort of, uh, a background in, in Greco-Roman customs or some, some understanding of ancient Near, East, uh, Near Eastern religion or redaction criticism or form criticism? I mean, do you have to have a knowledge of all those things to understand that man cannot save himself? No. Do you have to have all those things to understand that Jesus is the Son of God and died for sinners or that Jesus rose again? Or that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Or that it is our duty to to know God and to love God and to obey God? Or that Jesus will be coming again? Do you need all of that to understand those those truths? No, because they are clearly 
propounded in the Scriptures. Because these things are plain. So accessibility to truth, I think, is at stake. The gift of human freedom is at stake. Uh, Because implicit in the affirmation of Scripture's clarity is the recognition that individuals have the responsibility and the ability to interpret Scripture for themselves. Uh, And so we have a responsibility and an ability to study Scripture on our own. That's all we're saying here. Is that that I'm not bound to tradition. I'm not bound to what the church says. I have to interpret Scripture for myself. Of course, I don't want to do that. I mean... (laughs) I don't want to be an idiot. So, I mean, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to isolate myself from Christian community, right? I mean, that would be foolish. So it's not apart from Christian community, and it's, it's not even without attention to history or, or, or tradition. It's, 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 I mean, we're, we're going to look back. I mean, I'm saying I'm not going to read anybody in church history. No, I read from guys all the time. In fact, some of those dead guys are better than the ones that are alive, right? <laughs> Say, don't, don't study after people, guys that are alive. Study the dead ones. Study the dead guys. Okay, you know why? Because we know how they finished the race. You know how they finished. If all your heroes are living, that's not a good thing. Because I heard just this week, a friend of mine, a colleague in biblical counseling, has left his family, just rejected the faith, just turned away, been disciplined out of his church. This guy was a guy who was teaching biblical counseling five years ago. So... We don't want to make guys that are alive all, all, our heroes. <laughs> I'm not saying that we shouldn't respect and, and show honor and all that. I'm just saying be careful because we don't know how these guys are going to end. <clears throat> so we don't want to ignore history. We're not trying to ignore scholarship. But in the final analysis, the doctrine of per- perspicuity means that I should not be forced to go against my conscience. Only Jesus Christ speaking through the word of God is Lord of the conscience. So I must be diligent to study the scriptures and apply what I'm learning, applying those timeless principles of God's word to my inner life and to my behavior. Uh, I've got to inform my conscience biblically. And I have to be convinced in my own heart and mind of what is true. We might also say that the gift of human language is at stake. The gift of human language. It sounds so humble, right? So practical when someone says you can't put God in a box. You can't define God with human language. Uh, there, there are, there, these, are, these are mysteries that are beyond mere words and language. It, sound, it sounds nice when they say that, even noble. But is it true that just because God cannot be known exhaustively, that therefore he cannot be known at all? And just because God cannot be described exhaustively with words, does that necessarily mean that he cannot be described truthfully with human words? And is Scripture a record of humans attempting to understand God, or is Scripture a record of God revealing himself to us? Nowhere do Jesus or the apostles ever treat the Old Testament as human reflections on God. On the contrary, they viewed the Old Testament scriptures as the voice of the Holy Spirit. Right? Acts chapter 4, verse 25, the disciples confessed there that it was by the Holy Spirit who spoke through the mouth of David in Psalm 2. They didn't say this was David thinking about some prophetic things. They said the Holy Spirit spoke. 
2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is about thus saith the Lord. And is human language so irredeemable, so flawed, so inaccurate, and so impotent that it cannot possibly be a usable means of divine communication? So we can't forget this. We can't forget that human language, however imperfect and imprecise at times in the way that we use it, is a gift from God. Language is a gift from God. In fact, God, uh, God was the first one in the universe to speak, right? And, and, and what, did, what did he do? By his speech, he did what? He called the, Hebrew says he called the universe into being. And then, he, and then he came to Adam. How? How did God come to Adam? With words, right? Genesis 1, verse 28, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, he said to them, he was communicating in human language, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Verse 29, then God said, chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, verse 18, then the Lord God said. So God communicated to Adam with words, and as the image bearer, Adam was expected to understand what God said and to obey his commands. And by the way, who was the first, who was it that first challenged the clarity of verbal revelation? The serpent, right? The serpent challenged whether God had really spoken what Adam and Eve heard God to say. Genesis 3.1, has God said? <laughs> it's clarity. What he was saying is, you heard, but it was there was a mysterious meaning behind that. I know you heard God said, but it, it wasn't as clear as you think it was. So it's one thing to suggest that God cannot be known absolutely or contained in any verbal system. And it's appropriate to admit that language can be used, again, in our case, it can be used deceitfully. Uh, and it is subject to ambiguity because I think about this is a problem in our communication, right? is that I can say something and my words be ambiguous. So I, I tell my wife something. She says, I'm, she, she says something back. I'm like, whoa, I'm sorry. I obviously was not clear in what I said. I mean, words can be that way. And she says, did you mean that? And I'm like, nope, didn't mean that. And then I can give clarification. I mean, we understand those communication problems in, in our lives. And then sometimes we can use deceitful and, and sinister communication, right? Because we can say something that does not match our motives. The intent. In other words, we're saying something, but what we're saying in our words doesn't match what's in here. But that's not true of God. That's not true of God. So, if God is the divine speaker, if he's the divine speaker antecedent to all human speaking, and if we are created in the image of God, then it stands to reason that we are fit conversation partners for the God who began the universe by speaking. So human language is a gift, and it is the divinely created means whereby God, from the very beginning of creation, intended to make himself and his ways and his will known. And the doctrine of perspicuity acknowledges that truth. Well, let me give you one more. One final reason why holding to the perspicuity of Scripture is, is so vital. Because in the end, the character of God is at stake. The character of God is at stake. 
At the very heart of postmodern skepticism about knowing God is a low-grade notion of what God is like. And even some evangelicals that have been shaped and influenced by postmodern thinking tend to put forth this question. Who is man to be so proud that he thinks that he can somehow peer into the recesses of eternity and understand God omnisciently. Sound, again, sounds so humble, doesn't it? I mean, who, who are we to do that? Who are we to think that we can somehow look into those things, those deep things of God? I'm saying that is not the right question. The more helpful questions are ones like these. Is our God the sort of God who is willing to communicate with his creatures, which he is, and is he able to do so effectively? Or or this, has God spoken? And if he has, is, is he an effective communicator? And are we really more humble for ignoring the word of God? For ignoring his word. Much of, much of these debates concerning per- perspicuity and, and hermeneutics have, have as much to do with the doctrine of God as they do the doctrine of man. Is God wise enough to make himself known? Yes, he is. Is he good enough to make himself accessible? Yes. Is he gracious enough to communicate in ways that are understandable to even the meek? and the lowly, yes. And does God give us commands that we cannot understand? And does God give us a self-revelation that reveals more questions than answers? No. God does not do that. Scripture is clear, and it's clear about its own clarity. All throughout. And we ought to be thankful to God. I'm just thinking we ought to be thankful to God for all that he has revealed and that we can know with certainty this is pure and it's understandable and we're expected to know it, we're expected to study it, we're expected to base our lives on it. So all of these things, all of these things, especially the character of God are are at stake and and that's why we've taken the time to even talk about it. It's very, 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 I think, important important issue and informs all, all that we're trying to do here in, in the church, in our small groups, in our Bible study hour, in our, in, our, in our preaching. The Word of God is clear, and it's clear about its own clarity. It testifies to its own clarity, its own authority, its own sufficiency. And we need to pray that we never drift. We never drift and that we never stray from what God has given us. Proverbs 2.1. My son, if you, will, if, if you will receive, this is the plea. My son, if you will receive my words, receive it and treasure my commandments within you. Make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. All right, guys. Um, any any comments or questions? Bill, can I sure. Uh, say something? Yes. Um, I think I appreciate what you had to say. It is very important. Uh, and I think when we get caught in those conversations, uh, you can't put God in a box or whatever, or the scriptures unclear. Look at all the denominations. Uh, 
Uh, that's what the Catholic argument is. Look at all the denominations that came out of Protestantism. Okay. okay, well, what's not true to you? Because it's really deflection uh, or pragmatic. If it's clear, then i got to change my life, and I don't want to do that. Or it may be laziness. I'd rather the priest or someone else tell me not study it for myself. But what's clear? What's not clear? And, and they're going to focus, of course, on can you explain the Trinity? Or when is Christ coming again? Well, let's talk about whether you're allowed to sleep with someone else's wife. Or let's talk about, is it clear to you that you're not supposed to lie? And 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 bring it back to, because they're just trying to avoid the implications of Scripture. Yeah. And, okay, so maybe some things are hard to understand, the character of God, and they can't explain totally. But what about God's will for your life and your need to repent and submit to Christ? Yeah, because... I mean, the people that raise these questions are, in many ways, avoiding all that's clear. Right, it's unbelief. Yeah, it's unbelief. Yeah, uh, it's unbelief. And it's that similar, that same sort of, that uh, same vein of thinking of, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. Exactly. You know, when somebody says that, just say, can you, can you give me five? I mean, if there's so many, just off the top of your head, just give me five of them. <laughs> You'll be lucky to get one out of, out of that person. It's just, it's, just, it's just something they've picked up, something they've heard. They haven't looked in the Word of God. I mean, the people that are making these statements are, 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 are typically extremely unfamiliar with what the Word of God actually says. So hopefully this has been helpful for you, again, as you just, you're in your own study and, again, as you, as you interact. It's going gonna, it's gonna to become a, a, a bigger uh, issue. Again, it's, and it's not out, the, the discussion is not out there, folks. It's in the church. I mean, this is the, the church is caving uh, uh, time and time again on these issues. And they don't realize that when they're giving up perspicuity and clarity, they're not seeing the connection between perspicuity and sufficiency and authority and inspiration and inerrancy. And eventually they get to a point where they're just, I mean, why go to, why go to church? I mean, if, if Shane has nothing authoritative, I'll say, if Shane has nothing authoritative to say this morning, y'all just go home. I don't want to hear Shane's personal opinion. Do you? I, I don't. I mean, yours is as good as his. Let's just go to coffee. You and me, brother. We'll go down there. But if, but what if what Shane is saying is authoritative, and we should be basing our lives on it? We ought to be packed in there. I mean, we ought to just be. Who cares if it's crowded? Who cares if it's raining? You know. I mean, I just open up the windows if it fills up. We'll open up the windows and stand outside and. They do. I mean, does this not happen? It happens all over the world. People do. They can't can't get enough. Can't get into church. We'll just put out speakers and just stand out in 20, 20 degree weather. Why? Because they believe the word of God is authoritative and without error, and that they should base their life on it. I'm saying we need to have that kind of conviction. Okay.